0: Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome back to another edition of Tent Theology, where I get to talk to people who are doing the work of reimagining our social and political imagination. And I talk to a lot of artists and writers and practitioners and innovators, but today I get to talk to another theologian. Dr. Vince Baycote is the Wheaton College Associate Professor of Theology and the Director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics. He is the author of The Political Disciple, a theology of public life, and The Spirit in Public Theology, appropriating the legacy of Abraham Kuyper. And Abraham Kuyper is a political theologian who I have been told many times from many different people that I should be interested in, and I have never done the work. So when Vincent's uh, name popped up on my radar a couple of weeks ago, I jumped at the chance to interview him. So what's going to happen is I'm going to learn something today, and you get to sit in from me with me while I learn from Professor Becote, all about Abraham Kuyper, public theology, and the political scene in America today. Vince, what did I miss in that introduction to you? What what else do people need to know about you before you start?
1: Uh, I've been happily married for 25 years, and I do remember my wedding date, as a matter of fact, June 17th, 1995. Uh, Two daughters who are both here at Wheaton at the same time. One's a freshman, one's a senior, so that's nice. They get to be together for a year. The things that bring me interest to public theology are also the things that interest me in culture, the arts, you know, really any any way that we're thinking about how life matters in domains that people don't often think as spiritual, let's say, right? So I wanted to be a rock and roll star at one point, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. Who are your guys? Who are your...
1: Oh, it's been all kinds of bands. It depends upon... <laughs> it depends on what, what era we're talking about, right? So... Actually, to, to go back to when I was a kid, very yeah. first concert I went to was Kiss in nineteen seventy-seven. Oh boy! Wow! So like the, it, it was like the biggest thing I, in, in my life, right? And you're know, you're just seeing this spectacle, and I yeah. thought, wow, that it just looks so awesome. Led Zeppelin, or depending upon what phase I was in, the Scorpions, or U two, or Iron Maiden, or you know, then you get into sort of prog stuff, yes, etc. So i I'm, I'm an amateur electric bass guitar player. So oh, wow. um, people like Chris Squire or you think in jazz, Jaco Pastorius, Stanley Clark, John Patitucci, people like that. Um, there's, so, there's so many great, great players, all of whom um, both give me great inspiration uh, and at times desperation with their brilliance.
0: <laughs> so how did you get diverted from a promising career as an electric bass guitarist into public theology? I actually, you know, what? the first thing I want to maybe ask is what political imagination did you inherit? What kind of political culture were you born into, first of all, before we get to where you are now?
1: Uh, one point, to, point that, to, to identify that is I was born in 1965. And in the United States in 1965, part of what's beginning to happen is the Democratic Party are the ones who passed the civil rights laws under Lyndon Johnson as president. You're beginning to have African-Americans be more... People who are supporting the Democrats rather than the Republicans, you're the party of Lincoln. So I'm when I'm having some awareness of political realities, in my household, the assumption was vote for Democrats because they're for us. And one of my earliest memories, actually, when I was three years old, was after Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated, um, my uncle driving my mom and me and my older brother uh, to watch his train go by. And and I remember my brother, my uncle walking my brother closer, and me wanting to be closer, and my mom saying, "No, you stay back here." I still remember that thinking, "Well, why can't I go where they're going?" Um, but the point is that my, we're watching Robert F. Kennedy's, you know, casket go by. He he mm-hmm. was probably going to be the candidate for the Democrats in 1968. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it just points to the fact that that's the reality at that point, you know. These are people that are for us.
0: Were you in Chicago? I mean, you're in Chicago now. I was in Maryland. Maryland, okay.
1: I grew up right. in the Washington Metro area. Uh, my wife is in Chicago, but I, I'm okay. I uh, I grew up in Maryland I went to college in South Carolina. I lived in Tennessee between college and seminary. I was in the Chicago area for seminary. Went okay. to New Jersey for my doctoral degree, and then came and then came over to Wheaton. So it's kind of like a rectangle in a way. But so my my political imagination was formed by the reality of if you're black, you're most likely going to vote Democrat. Uh, integration was happening in the '70s. I remember when my school integrated, being nervous because where I lived, we we didn't get a bus, but white kids were getting bused to our schools. What's going to happen? You know, are going to be fights and stuff? Because I remember seeing some something on the news about all the stuff that was happening in boston which was rather hostile about about that and there was really no conflict at all they're just we were just hmm. kids together uh, mm-hmm. generally so um a person could have had a fight with any person <laughs> about if, if they were getting a fight about something uh, yeah. but th- that wasn't generally the case and, and there were a lot of friendships there uh, so i went to integrated schools basically that you know there's that part of it but it's also Learning if people if are talking about race, okay, the goal is um, to not see color, uh, which I would now say is a half measure. Yeah, uh, because yeah, sure. you, you, you don't hold something against someone, but perhaps an unintended effect in, in the best case scenario is that a person does not enter into the fullness of the life of another person. Yeah. Um, because what we are culturally, ethnically, et cetera, those things are woven into however people think about racial, racial and ethnic identity. How How are you think about having a good society? Well, a good society is one where you're trying to, in the United States, move more toward this aspiration of a country where there's equality of opportunity for everyone, et cetera. So, so the presumption of that is that well, how, how are you going to get there? Who's, and politically, who's going to help? African-Americans have more opportunity to have yeah. what's necessary for that. So I just grew up kind of assuming, because of what I was around, that Democrats were the people that were going to do that. That doesn't mean that I ever actually asked my relatives, who would you vote for? Uh, right. And when I did once ask my mother around a couple of elections who she voted for in the 80s, she would always say, none of your business.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. That's part and of the political that, imagination as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> With which... Which which tells me that probably in eighty four and eighty eight, I'm sorry, in eighty four she voted for Reagan, probably. Yeah, I mean right. most people voted for Reagan in eighty four, um, but in eighty eight she probably voted for Dukakis, but she wouldn't tell me. And I do remember once a relative saying, "You voted for Bush, didn't you?" You know, which I did in eighty eight and ninety two, uh, because of you know, pro life types of things. So, but that but that's also part of the complication for me was I, I grew up in a Baptist, African American Baptist church. Had a lot of positive spiritual formation in college through a predominantly white parachurch organization. That's also how I then really encounter the evangelical movement. That's when you you have that experience of when people you discover that someone is voting differently than you thought that people were going to vote. Wait, you're a Christian, you're voting for them, and of course they're thinking you're a Christian and you're thinking about voting for them. I, mean, I think that that happens. Uh, with people in many, you know, maybe we'll get to those kinds of stories. That was slowly on my path to being an independent, put it that way. <laughs> an independent, not in terms of being a libertarian. I am not. Right. But I am, I try to be some kind of committed centrist, a centrist with, with deeply held convictions, but also recognizing that both parties have promise and peril.
0: I mean, what's your engagement with? Not partisan politics so much as just what is your engagement with politics now? How do you approach all this? You said you're a committed centrist. Yeah, there is no committed centrist partisan politics. So how is what is your engagement with pol- the political imagination now?
1: I what I try to do is encourage people to see that whatever happens with the political realities. Uh, especially in the United States and given and given ways that people can sometimes some Christians in the United States will seem to suggest that the United States is at the center of God's plan for the universe. I, I try to remind people that, like, in ele- you know, elections are not the hinge of history or that elections are not the things that if if this election goes way X or Y, then the apocalypse is coming. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a, a hilarious thing, since the Bible says nothing about Western Hemisphere countries. So I think that that's just mm-hmm. missing the point. So I, I want, to, but but the other side of it is, it depends on which Christians I'm dealing with, because some Christians are very allergic to public engagement. Okay. Either because they think it's worldly, or because they think you're only going to get used. I saw somebody yeah. on Twitter today said basically, um, po- politicians will use you. To which makes me say, "You mean, but, 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 um, the corporations that sold you a car, that sold
0: yeah.
1: you, that that sold you a mortgage for your house, that um, produced the clothes that you wear—they don't use you either." I think yeah. sometimes it's easier to see how politicians politics may take advantage of people in a way analogous to this goes back to the whole rock music thing, actually. That. Yeah, some people may have music that if you turn your discernment cap off, uh, it will lead you to a life of dissipation. But if you if you have discernment, you recognize, hey, there's great artistry, don't really care so much about the lifestyle that person's living, but I love their talent. Um, and I like some, some, some tunes, I, I don't like others. Same thing with politics. Politics is how we get a lot of things done for the public good. Mm-hmm. And, they are, and they get things done for us that a lot of the things we take for granted. Well, how did that street get paved in front of your house? How did yeah. you get a stop sign? How did that stop sign become a traffic light? What makes sure that you have dependable water and electricity? Who's negotiating those contracts? All the, a lot of things that we don't think about as being political realities, those, those things are as, as much involved as what, whether you're talking about how you're dealing with international issues or the way that you're thinking about uh, the public good and certain things that you think should be legal or not legal, et cetera. There's, we'll see in the next decade or two what happens with either decriminalization or legalization of, of marijuana, for example those are political decisions that get made right so somebody's doing these things there are ways that people are involved in those things and they are only thinking about power and influence and that's why they're involved in it or people want to get close to power and influence so they're involved in it but some people are involved in politics because they actually want to be public servants and they want to imagine (laughs) that their community yeah imagine that right um and, and i guess the other thing is that most of politics is not what you see on commercials or on a campaign ad, Most of politics is, what have put it, is rather unsexy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work of mm-hmm. hopefully listening to your constituents, but then also working towards legislation. Mm-hmm. In which case, it's about how you're trying to think about, it. depending on what level of politics you're at, you're trying to attend to the goods. Well, ideally, the common good would be nice. Some interests are getting served. Let's put it that way, and so politics are doing that. And, and but I think the way that pe- the people are have an allergy toward it because they think that it either distracts people from Christian mission, right, uh, or that it can have a distorting effect on people's personalities because you get all caught up in the political realities, and and these things arguably become competitors for your your fidelity to to God, church, and the church. Let's say, and so. Uh, Yeah, those things can happen. But the other thing I say is, but last time I checked, you were complaining about what was happening in society. And so you seem to be okay by checking. If you're in in a country where there can be citizens have influence through voting or you can actually run for office, you have some capacity for participation. So if you have that capacity for participation, why are you complaining when you basically told Christians to check out of it, which basically meant you said, I'm going to trust the others to manage this. Yeah, right. And I'm happy with how they're going to manage it. Why yeah. are you surprised that somebody who thinks very differently from you decides that there are other priorities, other things to manage? They want to introduce things that you don't like. Say, so, well, you told them that they could do it. Now, you may not have said you do it, but by stepping away, you allow others to step into that space. I right. think that's uh, yeah. a concern that I, that I that I have about people stepping away from it and. And, and I guess some of it's also I don't think people understand that to to care about politics is not to worship politics.
0: Yeah, it's not right. Is
1: it not bow to Caesar, so to speak? So, I mean, can you find Christians that seem that they maybe have bowed to Caesar as much as Jesus?
0: Oh, perhaps. Uh, oh I could find you about five right now on my Facebook feed. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, yeah, you can see that. But it's like when I, when I teach students theology. Have, have people had bad experiences in churches? Have people experienced malfunctions or distortions of doctrine that have led to malfunctions and distortions or devastations of personal experiences? Yes. Does that mean that that is what is essential to theology or is that what theology is its best? Well, the answer is no. Right. But, if, but if you're confusing the dysfunctional, yeah. the dysfunctional is definitive or normative, then... Your idea of what it is is always something that's up to no good. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, similarly with politics, is politics always up to no good? Is it about a set get you know power and just um, getting advantage for yourself? Well, um, yes, we can find you people who do that, but there are other people. The reason they got involved in politics is because they cared about where they lived.
0: Yeah, they wanted to do something. Yeah. I've noticed that you use the phrase um, common good and also public, public theology, whereas I sometimes I refer to myself as a political theologian. What what's the difference in focus between a public theologian and a political theologian, do you think? Because I suspect it's more than just names. I think there's something going on here.
1: Well, uh, I'll begin with the unsatisfactory answer first. Well,
0: you are an academic. Vince, I wouldn't expect anything less than a complicated answer to my question. And I love it. I love it. Go on, hit us. Complicate away. Do it.
1: Well, the the <laughs> so the unsatisfactory answer is yeah. it depends. Right?
0: Yeah. Because
1: when I teach my political theology class, what I tell them is political theology can be what people mean when they say public theology. Okay. Because public engagement to them is basically how we are participating in those public realities that have to do with how we're trying to make the world better and often that involves some kind of political engagement it can be in one way a subset under the larger thing of public theology but even then If you if you invite listeners to just do a survey of Google political theology or Bing or whatever search engine of your choice and then see how many different ways people talk about it. Public theology can be about the question of whether the public is a domain that Christians should care about, or it can be about whether uh, the claims that Christians have are not just Claims that are understandable within the context of the Christian community, but that they are publicly accessible. Thereby, you can make public you can make arguments in public about what's good, true, etc. Using even even if even if you do this through a sort of translation type of way, you're saying that, that those concepts are publicly accessible. So people who are outside the the Christian fold, so to speak, can understand those things. So you can make You can have public discourse and use theological claims or use translations of theological claims in ways that people get. And you can use that and you can be um, persuasive or potentially persuasive. Mm. Uh, And people will understand what you mean when you're trying to persuade them. Or uh, public theology can be about simply how you're defining what is public from a theological lens. Okay. Right. Well, w- well, what do I mean? What I'm talking about, yeah. The public. What is that, yeah. right. um, yeah. And and do I then do this mainly do something exegetical, and I'm and then I'm trying to uh, say, well, based on everything the scripture tells us, public means blank, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so by way of analogy, with political theology, the question is, mm-hmm. um, is political theology about whether people should be involved in politics and you're making the case for political involvement Mm -hmm. is it how you are seeing how the political um operates either within the within scripture itself or how the political um has been at work uh in theological traditions how Mm -hmm. how have various figures how did augustine think about it? how did calvin think about it? how did say you know basil think about it Or how did Kierkegaard think about it, even? Uh, So um, I had to throw that in there. So so it can be that. Um, It can be about how religious traditions are thinking Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. political engagement or understanding what the political is. Mm -hmm. So so for me, the, the, the common thing, whether it's public theology or political theology, is you're talking about, generally speaking, the realities outside the context of the worshiping community, so hence that's the public, let's say and uh and 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 it's not the within the home the the, the private domain uh, and so those realities how are you engaging those in some way theologically and political theology would be a dimension under the umbrella of public where you're thinking about aspects of political life whether those aspects yeah. of political life are again is, is it about the, the weather of participation or once you're there how do you bring what you know theological matters to to how you perceive and then how you uh, engage and practice what you're doing in the public
0: mm-hmm.
1: or again uh, are you thinking about how differing traditions regarded, and then how you sort of negotiate between all of those. Things.
0: How did you get drawn into this world? So were, was it the theological side that drew you in, or was it the kind of public political side? Like what was it that attracted you to being in this field?
1: Uh, it was rock and roll that did it, uh, which, okay. I, which I'm print saying, uh, because <laughs> I realize that's not the answer you thought you were going to get. I love it. <laughs> but well, the reason that that's the answer yeah. is because... When people tell you if you listen to X, you know, uh, so let's see. So that, yes, yes. Mid 80s. So uh, I had the Iron, the Iron Maiden album, Peace of Mind, right? Okay. And awesome yeah. album for those who have listened to it. Just, just trust me. Yeah. Take a listen. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and if there's any bass players listening, you'll definitely like Steve Harris's bass play. People didn't know what to do with those covers, uh, and there was a um, a, a they tweaked a, or changed one word from a verse in Revelation and put that in part of what they were doing. And people mm-hmm. and people did that, and they, they all said about it. And that's like, how can you yeah. as a Christian be listening to all this, et cetera? So, yeah. so the point is that that's something outside of what you know, Christian discourse. Blah blah. blah.
0: You're outside so the box. How can you? How
1: can you? Appreciate that, engage that, etc. Right. So something out there. Okay. The out there, the the, the specific thing was, um, you know, heavy music. Um yeah. And is that okay? And the thing was that I only had an intuition that I could ha- have a an appreciation of something. And appreciation didn't mean worship or selling my soul to it. But I didn't understand the I didn't have any theological vocabulary for that. Well, so. It's really just a species of thing. I mean, it could have been you think too much about economics. You know, you're you're sitting here having you know I don't know uh, Hayek and Keynes like fight each other all the time, right? Uh, and that's you're always talking about all these <laughs> economists. I mean, wish you would say a little bit more about Jesus, you know? Um, yeah. So I mean, it could be anything else. Uh, so because those things are under, worldly things, worldly being understood as not spiritual things. Uh, right. And because they're worldly and the Bible says don't be worldly, then it is regarded by some as something that will take you away from fidelity mm-hmm. to God. It mm-hmm. seemed to me you could have fidelity to God and appreciate what was out there, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't have any vocabulary for that. So, similarly, when it came to how Christians are thinking about political matters, how how do Christians care about culture? politics, law, medicine, all those Mm. things. And not just think about those things only as evangelistic opportunities.
0: So raiding parties, you you sneak in, you win a soul and you run back to church. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What about actual participation in these domains? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For me, the rock and roll thing was really a general version of culture at large. Yeah. Um, and then, but, but you're talking about culture at large. Then, of course, part of what goes on in the culture is political realities. Yeah. So, so now what I've I've done, I've, I've now added you know, to what we are saying. So what do you mean when you say theology <laughs> of culture? Is theology of culture the same thing as public theology and political theology? And of course the answer is, well, it
0: depends. Well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so Abraham Kuyper, tell me about this guy. So has he somebody who's helping you negotiate this, these different spheres, or, or finding yourself as a disciple of Jesus and an Iron Maiden bass player fan? Like, <laughs> is Abraham Kuiper? What does he bring to the table? How come this? Yes. How does this guy help us?
1: Uh, Kuiper was the person that, um, since, since we're talking music, I'll use it as a metaphor, a person who played a song that was really my song. Okay. And now I, I learned there were other songs he played, which is how I became a critical thinker. I didn't okay. like those songs. Okay. But uh, in terms of <clears throat> the public engagement piece, I got my theological vocabulary and conceptuality from him I sort of beginning to get it from Francis Schaefer a little bit okay. in the late 80s before I went to seminary. But, but it was really when I, I read Abraham Kuyper's lectures on Calvinism and he and he described the doctrine of common grace, which was basically a theological argument and that, that definition of it, a theological argument for participating in the world.
0: So common grace grace that let let's let's slow down a bit here. Yeah, common grace that. go on teach me.
1: Yeah, so I'm not a Calvinist, right? because some yeah. people were like well,
0: friends of mine
1: who are um, uh, Karl Barth aficionados, right, do not like yeah. language at all. Now, it's not only people who are fans of Barth. That yeah. don't, there are other people who don't like it as well. In fact, there are people even within the larger orbit in which Kriper fits the Reformed tradition. There are people who would say something like, I'm a Dutch Calvinist, and I'll tell you what.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Common Grace it doesn't exist. How about that? <laughs> uh, of course, I'm not in agreement with them. But uh, what Kuiper was saying was basically this. Post-Genesis 3, you have a fallen world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the world goes on. And prior to Genesis 3, you have Genesis 128. Humans are given what, what you call it, the creation mandate, cultural mandate, etc. You can see it beginning to be put into practice in Genesis 2 with naming animals, you know, tending mm-hmm. the garden, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Though they are sent out of the garden in Genesis 3, God doesn't tell them, all that stuff I told you to do about fill the earth, so do etc.
0: Right. Remember right. all that? Forget yeah. it. Forget about and it. And just yeah. keep running. Yeah, yeah.
1: And running and screaming, perhaps, uh, until, <laughs> until I send you a savior. And... I've, I've, I'd like to tell people that if you look at the announcement of the curse, the curse is about complication, but not futility. Right. Okay. And common grace okay. is a way of thinking about the fact that possibility remains for participation in the created order that can have some kind of fruitfulness, but it is not uncomplicated fruitfulness because the, mm-hmm. you, you'll, you'll work by the sweat of your brow and you'll get fruit from the ground. But guess what? You don't only get fruit from the ground. You get all these weeds, etc. cetera.
0: So by way of analogy,
1: common grace would be the fact that God maintains the life of the world and makes possible Christian stewardship of life in the world, which includes culture, politics, of course, agriculture, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's God's generosity of a, a preserving grace, arguably. And it okay. also explains why God, in his generosity, gives gifts to people just by for being human. So, so I, I do distinguish between talents and spiritual gifts, talents being gifts of common grace, that whether you're Christian or not, they're the, the abilities that God gives people and people can do great things with them or horrible things with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, spiritual gifts are things oriented towards the specific dimensions of, of ministry uh, and mission in the church. So, common grace is God's generosity to the created order that makes possible our participation. Um, But it, but so, a way, another way Mm -hmm. to think about it is to say it means that there's still a domain of participation. And in that domain of participation, God not only says you ought to do it, he actually gave you. What, what some people call the first great commission on page one to participate right. and he never yeah. said about that first great yeah commission. Yeah, yeah it Forget is thereby was sent <laughs> because of curse. Yeah.
0: well that never okay. happened okay so common grace is underwriting the public theology of abraham kuyper then this idea that the world it's part of it now your guy so kuyper i just what's his dates? by the way he's a dutch
1: 1837 to 1920
0: 1920 now my guy is kierkegaard who's a danish philosopher now my guy just shout shouted from the outside at the places of power right he was just kind of negative and cynical and angry sure your guy actually became the prime minister of his country he did his political theology was very uh active and proactive right
1: it was but it's important to note that one he had to convince people that they should be participating in public life and care about it. It's also important to note that he saw himself as, he was a leader of people called the Kleine Leiden, little people. Okay. Uh, and these people were, people were confessionally orthodox. Um, some of those confessionally orthodox people were very skeptical about being publicly engaged. And for him, common grace is one of the ways that you present a rationale for public engagement to them. Whereas when he talks about what's called the antithesis, he's emphasizing the distinctiveness of Christians, ways that Christians that were not like others. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, yes, he becomes prime minister, but he becomes prime minister. He has to have a coalition for that to happen. And that coalition Mm -hmm. included those who were Roman Catholics that were uh, had political parties as well. So.
0: But did he have a positive vision for this? Like. Does he have a positive theological vision for uh, working with groups who have diametrically opposite points of view and things? I mean, or was it purely pragmatic?
1: What he says at because because one of the things about Kuiper is he was a very productive person. And to uh, show that I have growth and sanctification that still remains, let me just point out that. Uh, he was so productive that that I found myself relieved to learn that he had three nervous breakdowns, uh, okay. or at least three ones that were well-known, uh, because it meant that even he couldn't really do all that he was doing. Right. right. Um, so, I mean, he was the editor of a weekly paper and a daily paper. He okay. was a political leader. He had been a clergy person uh, and remained involved in the life of the denomination. So he's doing all these things. He's a, he's, a, he's an organizer. His bibliography is over 200 items. The fact that he's busy is also why, you know, there's been a resurgence, thankfully, attention to Herman Bavinck, yeah. uh, who also wrote about public things. But Inck actually wrote like big systematic theology volumes. Kuyper is, you know, doing so many things. He wrote a lot of things that were compiled into volumes, but, but he's not writing a dogmatics the way that, that, that Inck did. Um, okay. Although he knew about all that stuff, he he wrote a lot and wrote for the occasion. Uh, but I know all the th- things he was doing, just to say that he was someone who, um, at the 25th anniversary of the, the the daily newspaper called The Standard, he basically said that, you know, his life task was to see the Netherlands. Operating according to what he called God's holy ordinances or ordinances of creation. So he wanted uh, the Netherlands to be a country that was definitely significantly ordered and influenced by Christianity. However, it's important to note, he also makes it very clear that the point about wanting that to be what influences society is because he thinks that's how you have the best society. Mm-hmm. Not that everyone has to be converted to believe exactly what you believe.
0: Okay. I was gonna I was gonna ask you this. Yeah. No, no, no.
1: I mean, he was actually an overbearing personality in certain ways. Okay. Ways, but he was no person who wanted a theocracy or a person who wanted right. or, or or who thought that you confuse the church or politics. In fact, he makes it very clear the way you do church is not the way you do politics, it's not the way you do education, it's mm-hmm. not the way you do business all those things he calls them spheres I like guess sphere of business okay. the sphere of government sphere of education etc each of them there's a way that god thinks that they ought to operate and people need to put in their participation within them they discern what he calls the ordinances of creation of how okay. to operate in those domains so it's
0: not about a cre- it's not a story of christian domination of each sphere
1: no no he- okay well Even if he wanted Christians to win the day, so to speak, the goal is not believe like us or get your head cut off. But he was never really in position to have that kind of.
0: But that wasn't his dream. That wasn't. He doesn't think that God's holy ordinances are followed when everybody is shouting in unison the same the same doctrines.
1: Well, and also because he's a Calvinist, he doesn't think everybody's going to get converted anyway.
0: So. (laughs) Okay. It, yeah. you know, and he was no
1: universalist. So he's he's thinking about what's going to make life good for everyone, whether you believe what I believe or not. Now, it's important to note, by the way, you cannot talk about Kuiper and public life without talking about the fact that uh, some people regard some of his thinking as setting the stage for apartheid in South Africa. There's a book called Contours of the Kuiperian Tradition by Craig Bartholomew, who's from south africa himself mm-hmm. uh and like craig i would agree that kuiper is at his worst when he talks about race that's something about how i became a critical thinker i sometimes say when i do lectures about kuiper i'm not sure that he believed that someone like me would be doing what i'm doing but now okay he talks. that's right right <laughs> <laughs> uh, he sees more clearly now Okay, I like to say about that, but
0: <laughs> did he have a kind of a, every race should stay in its lane kind of? Well, that's the thing. Or...
1: He didn't really say that. Okay, but but in South Africa, his idea was called sphere sovereignty. That like there's a domain for yeah, government. Right. Yeah, right. People made. I can see black, yeah. colored, and white. Yeah. Right. yeah. Spheres. Kuiper never yeah. does that. So that's one of the reasons why I say he's not to blame. Yeah. Some people Craig would say, Craig Bartholomew would say he's partially to blame because when he writes in support of the Boers in the 1890s, he is um he's trying to elevate them. So what he says is elevating them. And he's also saying things about beware of like the black danger and things like this. And he speaks, you know, in a, a supportive way of the Boers by saying, you know, they're not sentimental men, but people of practical genius. And part of the way they did that was they said it was wise to forbid intermarriage between Boers and, and between black women. And arguably, one could say is because he would say that the, the differences in culture and civilization are just too different. So why would you would you do that? Some would argue that uh, it's because he never thought that they or people like myself were going to get there. In fact, the, the way I became this critical thinker is in his lectures on Calvinism, the same book. Where he played my song about common grace and about this being how public engagement is the same Mm -hmm. book, where he says near the end he's he's contrasting election and the doctrine of election and evolution, and he has this quote where he says to put it concretely, if you if you're a plant, you'd rather be a rose than a mushroom, with an insect, a butterfly rather than a spider, for bird an eagle rather than an owl, among the higher vertebrates a lion rather than a hyena being man, rich mm-hmm. rather than poor, talented rather than dog-minded, of the Aryan race, than Hottentot or Kaffir. Now, you might understand that that put me into a little bit of a crisis when I read that, <laughs> yeah, of, of major proportions.
0: How did you not slam the book and throw it across the room then? Why didn't uh, you?
1: Uh, I did put the book down. Oh, okay. Because I was, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do.
0: Because I mean, he's writing this in 1860. It's 1898. Eighteen ninety-eight. Okay, so this is not when he says Aryan, he's not talking. It's not nineteen forties Germany. He doesn't, but...
1: know, he, he doesn't know there's going to be a third rank. Gotcha. He, okay. he, he means certain white people, right? But yeah, he, he just is, means white. He basically means European and not African.
0: He means European, arguably
1: yeah, what yeah. he means. Yeah, right. And, or European and not sub-Saharan African, probably more specific. Yeah. Um, not that he'd ever like really met anybody from sub-Saharan Africa.
0: No, exactly. But, it's theoretical to him. Yeah,
1: but he. He's not trying to say that black people are terrible, et cetera, et cetera. But he never improves on that. And there are other places where he says things that are worse. You know, one place he says, um, "You know, the Arab appeals to you by beauty of appearance." This, this is the middle of the quote. The Arab appeals to you by beauty of appearance. The Dutch are common. The hot and tot fills you with loathing. So he does have this perception, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he doesn't. Undo that, but elsewhere he talks about how this reformational theology makes everybody equal, and this is the thing that undermines systems of caste and slavery, right right uh, all those types of things so so
0: it's one of these cases, like what's good about Kuiper fixes what's bad about Kuiper uh,
1: I would say I would say what's good about Kuiper uh indicates that he was not able to overcome the gravitational pull. Of his his cultural assumptions, and he was not able to live up to its fullness in that regard. Uh, Nor, nor, nor were some of his uh, theological projects.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So,
1: so, but, but it's also how I became a critical thinker because I had to ask. So, do you just burn uh, everything this guy wrote, or do you say, "I'm using," going back to my my musical album metaphor. You know, once upon um, when listeners who do know what an album is, you know, once upon a time you bought these things. <laughs> and think. you and you put and you put and you put the, the needle down and you play it and you play it or you move it around to play songs. Well, I wanted to play the album all the way through and I loved what I was hearing at the beginning. Uh, but then I got near the end and I thought I don't like that song at all. Mm-hmm. Now do I smash the album? Right. Or do I admit There are good songs and bad songs Mm -hmm. and i need to be truthful about what's good truthful about what's bad yeah and appreciate how he's helpful but also say here's why um, he definitely had feet of clay this is part of how he had feet of clay Mm -hmm. uh, among among those things but yeah that's also instructive for with any figure it's important for us to remember that if they're not jesus you're you're just a day closer to the day of reckoning when you have to deal with the fact that they are really disappointing because they're human, and don't you mean is they're completely disappointed necessarily? Sometimes they are, but but hmm. they are. Well, I'm going to say mostly disappointing. Let's go that way. Some people are pretty much completely, but generally I'd say mo- people are between mostly to less disappointing. But you have to own how they're helpful and own how they. Failed or how they missed things yeah. uh, just didn't get things right, you know it's like when people who are if, if you like Carl bart great uh but if you keep hanging around Carl bart at some point, you're gonna get to the charlotta von kirschbaum question, and you've yeah. got to deal with that and deal with yeah. the conversations some people are having about did his theology and I'm saying it, i say i I don't have any clear take on this but some people were asking when they discovered this, did his theology try to rationalize what was going
0: yeah, on yeah yeah
1: right uh, so it's a fair question to ask um, but asking that question doesn't mean that the answer is yes right so you, you have to ask well, with would create yeah. not or or if you're if, or if you're reading John Howard Yoder, especially these days, you've got to deal with all the the stuff that was going on with the sexual impropriety, and does that mean don't teach him or does that mean? Uh, teach him, but you got to tell the truth and talk about the complications. Yeah. If, you're the, if you have a theology of nonviolence, and then you, you in the context of nonviolence, in the particular way you're talking about eschatological yeah. relationships, you actually yeah. kind of perpetrate violence. So, exactly. In a context where non resistance is part of what
0: you yeah, know, right.
1: the ethos is, how yeah. do you negotiate that? Does that mean you had be to
0: negotiate? abraham kuyper talking about common grace and all these different spheres and yeah. yet he's also now part of this world that is creating apartheid uh or or uh,
1: he, he he is somewhat connected to his
0: somewhat connected fair enough and yeah. so so what is, what does he bring to the table for followers of jesus then so i understand what i don't want to take from him but what does he bring to us? So you've written you've written a couple of books about this guy, right? The yeah, political disciple, yeah, yes. the spirit of public theology. Yeah, so what? Yeah. Why? Why in the age of Trump and Biden and uh, Brexit do we need Abraham Kuyper? Come on.
1: Uh, we need someone like Kuyper because he helps us to have a theological argument for why we should be involved in the in public engagement in the first place. Okay. And because he helps us to think not just about why we get there, but thinking about remembering that we're Christian when we get there. Yes, right. That's, that's another way. That's a another well, that's way to talk word. about common grace and antithesis. He's helpful uh, both because of how he succeeded and how he didn't. Uh, he was greatly gifted, but I think also subject to those gifts. That's why he never really groomed a successor uh, mm. in terms of you know sort of his the movement with which he's associated with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so you can really learn from him but but he if you're reading him talking about why Christians ought to be involved in the public mm. I mean I go back and read that stuff and I go this is the song yeah yeah and and it's and I think one of the reasons he, he, ways he's really important is that he's talking about yes you're a christian but a Christian should be involved in politics it's important um it doesn't mean being a triumphalist. Yeah. Um, Sometimes people think if you want, if you if you are involved with the transformation of society or you think there ought to be a theology that orients the transformation of society, that that inevitably entails triumphalism.
0: You cannot
1: read Kuiper and get there. So, again, because even though he wanted the Netherlands to be run by these ordinances of creation, he knew that everybody wasn't going to be a Christian. And he wasn't going. He wasn't trying to say, "Hey, the clergy ought to be running everything," uh, or that you ought to run government like a church. And he was trying to he, he continually, I would say, trying to encourage people to think about why it's proper for us to care about the public domain and to care about it Christianly and to and to be Christian while you're there. But then you're discerning how you do that. And I think the, fa- the fact that you, it's carving out this space of participation without thinking that, well, without a couple of things. One, you don't, in a sense, leave behind your Christian convictions when you get somewhere in the public. I think a potential hazard of some ways that people think about two kingdoms theology is mm-hmm. that we do our confessional stuff in context of worship and stuff. We, when we're in the world, I mean, do that well, but don't try to quote unquote Christianize that. Yeah, exactly. Which my, my response is so you forget that you're a Christian when you're there? Exactly. And you're yeah. just a nice person while you're there? Yeah. And you're yeah. just a competent, whatever it is, while you're there? Yeah. To me, you don't stop being that person when you get there. And I think it's also important to note that you can think about a Christian politics, and a Christian politics doesn't have to mean that you only like hyper had in, the, in that context of the Netherlands, that you had Christian political parties, that that you had certain Christian institutions, you had got Christian schooling eventually, et cetera. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you have to do, but it's one thing you could do yeah. uh, in the context that he was in. And I guess here's another important point with Kuyper is that Kuyper saw himself, he's called a neo-Calvinist because he wasn't trying to just cut and paste from Geneva into the Netherlands. Um, and he talked about the fact that you're taking your context seriously. He said, you know, the metaphor is something like the Calvinist plant needs to be, you know, cleaned and watered and be planted. Right. So because you, you, you're you doing the work where you are with the tradition. Mm-hmm. So yeah. similarly, I call myself a Neo-Kyperian because one, well... He boy was he imperfect, but but also because my goal isn't to just cut and paste what he did, but to in certain ways stand on his shoulders, carrying forward certain things that are really helpful, but also trying to take those things forward where I am, because the questions that we have in the moment aren't always the specific ones he had. Though in some ways, by the way, he was very prescient. Some things he said about where things were going is like. How would you know that? Yeah. Uh, Really interesting. But the the, the point of, of appreciating him isn't just to quote him and try to do exactly what he did. Right. Because the 21st century isn't the Netherlands, the 19th century. So how are you stewarding a legacy rather than just merely passing it
0: on? So what's occupying your your heart and your mind now, like right now in the present, you know, what kind of stuff are you, you, you did tell me off off air that you, you get asked to, to come and speak a lot of things. You're you're getting asked to come and comment on things. What, what's the kind of uh, your voice is people are wanting to hear your voice. How do you bring the Ky, neo kyperian to the public theology right now in America today? What are you doing? Uh,
1: one of the ways is by talking about how we manage the political moment. Okay. That we're in. The ideological polarization can make some people just say, all right, it's so polarized, so tribal. It's so toxic. What yeah. yes, what's yeah. the use? Yeah. Um and a one so level. I'm pol- like
0: that. That's me. So teach okay. me better.
1: <laughs> so, that's no, me. <laughs> part of me wants to say anybody who takes the doctrine of depravity seriously should not be surprised. Because why why do you expect humans to act like realized eschatological human beings? That this is this is I think. One of the problems of quote unquote progress and civilization. It lulls people into thinking that somehow human beings have progressed as a race advanced to <laughs> look Look at us. We're almost like Jesus, all of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to me, it's, it's the same way that I think that you know the modern project is a failure in the sense that, yes, we get lots of great technological advances, et cetera, but isn't it kind of iron, ironic? All this modern philosophy coming out of Germany, et cetera, it's like, oh, isn't, isn't that where the Third Reich was? exactly yeah how's that delivering humanity to some kind of blissful uh state of a new humanity all under the tutelage of an objective reason let's say uh Mm. like well uh two world wars is what it got you which doesn't mean again that there's there's a lot of good stuff that's happened in the modern world but things that humans build are not the things that bring about the realization of the fullness that we need for humanity. I mean, ultimately, it's going to happen when, when Christ returns. So, so we had to participate in a world that we actually should not be surprised that just when we think we might be getting somewhere, all of these things remind us that, hey, guess what? Sin mm-hmm. is real.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: So, part of what I want to talk about is that reality, but I also want to talk about the reality that if you are a Christian, you you do negotiate this responsibility for the world with also a kind of exilic identity if you're reading first peter or if you feel like you're in a first peter type of experience Mm -hmm. you are not in a position where you're thinking very optimistically about what you can do Mm -hmm. to make the you know the polis a better place yeah You, you you're subject to whatever's happening there I yeah. think depending on where people are in the world, they they feel that exilic reality in different yeah. ways. But ways that people may feel it even in contexts where you can vote, et cetera, I think they feel it because you see ways that people are, I guess, made fearful and unsettled. I and mean, before the pandemic, people mm-hmm. were already getting unsettled, arguably because of things that are happening, because of globalization and because of... You know the promises of globalization, also having the perils of economic destabilization, etc. How do you figure out how to make make this really good for everybody and not just for like a point one etc. Yeah, right. People are yeah. nervous about that. You know, countries that have visions for where we're going to go as a people, and then if you don't already have, if you're not already part of the haves, people saying what was promised me when I was a kid doesn't seem accessible anymore, etc. All yeah. that anxiety, you have all those things before you get a pandemic. And you've had going on, before you get the death of George Floyd and all the kinds of things that are happening around that, you've had, from the beginning of the United States, a problem with race.
0: Yeah, there's never not been a time.
1: Uh, Well, well, arguably, that goes back to Genesis 3. That that goes all the way back to the woman you gave me in Genesis 3. Yeah, It certainly goes to Genesis 4 with, Cain said to Abel, brother, shall we take a stroll? (laughs) Right. And and of course, he was up to good. Right. So that humans have always looked for ways to uh, try to destroy each other. Um, And again, civilization um, sometimes lulls us into thinking, well, but because we're we have this kind of public ethos, we can rise above this, etc. And then you see that uh, even in the best situations, you always have things that are are antagonizing Mm -hmm. that for varying reasons. Uh, so I'm so part of what I've been thinking about is um, how, in a time of polarization in a time of nervousness, do you, do you encourage people to be politically engaged
0: uh,
1: and to see that as responsibility, but not see it as ultimate? Because if you're in a context where you can vote, it's one of the ways you can seek the good of your neighbors. But but even in seeking that good of the neighbors, remembering the imperfection of politics rather than thinking that, despite the promises of any politician, that a vote means I'm voting for some figure who's going to deliver the eschaton to me. This is the interesting thing that I sometimes observe with the United States presidential elections, is that in the United States, we exist because we were trying to not have a monarchy. Yeah. But we act like we're voting for a person who will operate with full power. Yeah. And we'll operate like a monarch. It's like our country like isn't designed Superman king
0: all rolled into one. Yes. Yeah. And
1: and it's, that's not yeah. what the president is. That's why you have checks and balances and all those yeah. types of things. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, reminding people that even if you had your ideal candidate, there's still ways that your ideal candidate is a bad choice. Mm-hmm. Now that's I that that's not very encouraging to say that. But what I mean by that is no politician no political party is bringing forth in some unadulterated way the greatest good locally or globally yeah um it's 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 going to be very much a penultimate uh yeah. types of, of, of goods and so you had to be aware of the mixed bag reality of it but if you You know, you're aware of the opportunity while also being aware that there is a sense in which this world is not your home because the world as it will be when Christ transforms it is called a new world because it'll be very different from this current state of affairs. So if that's the case, then um, serve here, but don't serve here as if... um, I must be loyal to this order as if this order is what the way things are always going to be. Yeah. So you have to live within that kind of tension. And of Mm -hmm. course, encouraging you to live within tension at a time of ideological polarization is um, in some ways, I think, a hard sell. Yeah. Because what sells better is we can get certain ends in a certain time. Uh, and, my, and my point by by talking about living the tension isn't don't try to get various things around the common good. Don't try to facilitate ways to continue to address the the questions of race or you know poverty. Nev- po- poverty's never been solved. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or are attending to what's going on with, with with the environment or thinking about how um, you really are going to try to create. Um, economic opportunity when you've had certain things that have made things challenging for people and now you have a pandemic making things further challenging. Encouraging people to say, yes, it's really hard. Yes, some people have ideas and some things may be presented that can be helpful, but none of them is going to completely deliver the end of a particular problem and the beginning of something else. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I want to encourage that kind of, nuanced type of, of engagement. And also, um, I just uh, turned in a manuscript about an uh, evangelical theology that's really a good news theology in the sense that not just that it proclaims good news, but that it performs good news. And it performs it so well, the evangelical movement is actually something that people think really is a good thing rather than being uh, a label that has a lot of baggage. Right now, yeah. Uh, or right. in some ways, it's like you know, a cruise liner that's been hit by a bunch of torpedoes.
0: So you still uh, use you 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 still will say you're an evangelical, or you you think that's a useful camp to still fly the flag for?
1: Well, uh, John Perkins said he said, "Why am I going to give up a word that has good news in it?" Right. So the the best of the evangelical movement does a lot of good things. Yeah. Uh, the worst of it, you deal with what you deal with within anything, where some people are dealing with questions of power or not na- or not addressing certain cultural norms while mm. being concerned about others. Other people are pivoting away from attending to ways that they need to attend to questions like race and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to talk about an evangelical movement that uh, if you allegedly are so biblicist and you say you, you, you trust this entire Bible, Well, I'm going to keep putting it in your face and say, do you really believe this? And if you really believe this, then at some point you're going to acknowledge that it it tells you that people need personal reconciliation with God. It also tells you that God has always cared about justice, not just at an individual level, but at the corporate and structural levels as well. Um, It also tells you that if you're really going to be submitted to God, that means that God can search your heart, which means you are actually willing to have God expose in you the fact that maybe you've missed a lot of stuff. But you yeah. said you really wanted to be submissive to this God and submissive to his word. So if you really mean that, are you willing for him to say, did you know it's a bit dark over here? Did you know you've ignored this? Do you know you've harbored this? I, so I, that that's something that I think is important. So I, I, I try to talk about a way that you can have um, and an evangelical theology that is welcoming the contributions of of minorities, and I use a couple of examples and do some constructive stuff myself. Mm-hmm. And I also mentioned Kai Prithee and I revisit the Spirit of Public Theology, uh, just talking about how the Spirit not only preser- is the agent of common grace, but particular grace gives us the lens for seeing that there is a common grace, and then catalyzing us towards stewardship. Uh, in 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 the world, which includes addressing all kinds of things, or making the world better, so wow. so so that's part of what I try to do. In that.
0: Vince, we as we come to a close with this uh, conversation, can you direct my listeners where where can they go to find out more about you or your writing? Are you hiding? Are you very hard to find on the internet?
1: Oh, I'm not because <laughs> that that thanks to the influence of somebody who I mentioned, Brenda Soldier McNeil, who has a book called Becoming Brave it just came out. Um, she told me over 10 years ago, cause I was talking about trying to do more public speaking, etc. Yeah, And she goes, do you have a website, Vince? I was like, no. And, and it was one of those moments. I think you really need a website.
0: Might, might be a plan A. It's a yeah. good, it's a good idea.
1: Yeah. So, um, thankfully, uh, a Wheaton alumna who now works for Google <laughs> built my website. So, right. So, so where he, is it? Vince so www.vincentbaycoat.com. Vincent yeah, So you can see things about speaking, writing there. I'm also trying to begin doing some kind of coaching type stuff, helping pastors to build bridges between faith and life. So I'm trying yeah. to uh, do all that and I'm happy. To, it's it's another way of not just being a sort of a presentation thing, but in a yeah. sort of working with church leaders, saying, look, you already believe things. How do the things that you believe orient your people toward yeah. life? not just within the church but in their life beyond Sunday. Life, so I'm trying to begin doing some of that as well.
0: Dr. Baycote, thank you so much for joining us. I've so enjoyed being schooled in Abraham Kuyper and all things uh, Kuyperian. It's been really good and I really appreciate your time. Thank you oh, so this much. This is great. This is great.
1: I'm sorry that uh, we didn't get to talk as much about what what would happen if Kierkegaard and Kuyper walked into, you know, <laughs> ran to each other like in some alley
0: somewhere and had a next time we'll do it again we'll, we'll have a Kierkegaard Kuyperian standoff I'm sure
1: <laughs> that, that would be fun to talk about
0: <laughs> well go well and I, I hope we talk again soon Fantastic. thanks so much thanks. Bye. bye to further support the show please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts follow us on social media and learn more about 10th theology at www.tenththeology.com Thank you for joining us, and God bless everyone.